This afternoon we're joined by Mandy Donnelly, Senior Practitioner ACT. Thanks Mandy for joining David and I uh, for this conversation. Absolute pleasure on you. Really appreciate it. Now Mandy, I hear an accent. You're obviously weren't born in Australia. Whereabouts do you hail from? I'm originally from the northeast of England, about 60 miles from the Scottish border, so people often think I'm Scottish, but I'm actually Geordie by background. I was really confused. I thought you might be Irish. Hmm. I have a lot of Irish friends, so I've picked up a lot of the accents. And uh, how did you come to be in Australia? Um, Many, many years ago, probably 26 now, I went travelling around the world, and when I was in India, I met one of my really good friends now in India and she said whenever you're in Melbourne give me a ring so I did fell in love with Melbourne and emigrated to Australia six months later Mm. and so you've lived in Melbourne lived in Melbourne from 95 to 2018 and so you've only been in Canberra how long since July the 5th last year. So that's a very short period of time. Yes. Almost yeah. a year. Yes. And your background, your working background is in? I'm actually a psychiatric nurse by background. I trained in a thousand bed institution in the northeast of England almost 40 years ago now. So my career has always been in mental health right up until 2007 in Melbourne when the inaugural senior practitioner for Australia, Geoffrey Chan, asked me to go and work at the senior practitioner's office in Victoria. And that's where I've been working since 2007. And then in 2015, I was asked to provide independent oversight to the 1600 government schools in Victoria regarding restraint and seclusion. And then I applied for the SAT senior practitioner job last year and I was lucky enough to get it. Fantastic. Just in terms of your experience, you've worked in the UK and Australia in the mental health system. How different are our systems? Are they vastly different? I, I think because my last six and a half years in the UK was in Jersey in the Channel Islands which is a very, very different environment to mainland UK. And then the first 10 years I was in Melbourne, I actually worked at the Victorian Institute for Forensic Mental Health. So I was working in forensic mental health. So very, very different service systems, so very hard to compare them. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you anyway. So you're now in this role as the senior practitioner. We've never had a senior practitioner before in Canberra? No, never. There has been talk of creating the senior practitioner role for many years now, since about 2012-13. As I said, Geoffrey Chan was the first senior practitioner in Australia in 2007, and then he was the first senior practitioner in Queensland around about 2012. So creating the SAT senior practitioner role has has been talked about since around about 2012, 2013. 
But last year, the actual act was finalised, which created my role. Yep. And what does your role entail? It's very, very specific in its outline in the act that it only looks at regulated restrictive practices. So those would be chemical restraint, mechanical restraint, physical restraint, environmental restraint and seclusion. So they're the reportable restrictive practices. But what I really like about the Senior Practitioner Act in ACT is it actually outlines best practice and it actually talks the reader through positive behaviour support. So if you actually start the act at the beginning and read the purpose of the act, it is to create that positive behaviour support framework in which to reduce these restrictive practices. So rather than concentrating on the restrictive practices in place, it concentrates on how can we reduce them? What can we do to work together to get better planning in place? Because people with complex behaviours often have multiple services involved in providing support to both the person and their families. And because my act covers schools, early childhood settings, long day care, out of home care and disability services, it actually allows all those service settings to work together on one plan. Because my mantra is one person, one plan. So therefore, everybody needs to work together to get a better outcome and reduce and eliminate the restrictive practices. But you're not working in, say, clinical services, psychiatric services. Restrictive practices and clinical services are regulated by the chief psychiatrist within ACT. But as soon as somebody's discharged from an inpatient setting and they're, they're being provided services and supports in the community, if there are any restrictive practices in place, those are then reported to me. Right. So would it cover places like step-up, step-down facilities? It depends where the funding's coming from. Because if the funding is coming from NDIA, then they're covered by my act because they're then a registered disability support provider. So people need to meet that criteria to come under my Act currently, but that doesn't mean that into the future the Act may not have a broader coverage of different services. Yeah, so that means that people who don't have a, a National Disability Insurance Scheme package aren't covered by the Act. It's anybody who's in receipt of disability services, but my experience so far has been that anybody with a psychosocial disability is generally receiving disability services from a provider through a package through the National Disability Insurance Agency. So that's just the way I need to define the coverage of my act because then people are regulated under my act and need to actually report the use of any restrictive practices to me.
Mm. So it goes by the individual concerned and how they're, uh, where they're funded by rather than the organisation's service provider because I, I think increasingly these mental health community service providers that are now both, uh, yes. they, they have are funded increasingly by the NDIA or NDIS, but they also have perhaps some programs that are funded by ACT Health, perhaps. Yeah, and coverage at the moment under my act is people in receipt of disability services. So therefore it needs to be a registered disability support provider. But they could be Which also... health would not be. Right. Yeah. yeah. But they could also be funded by health of for course. certain programs. Or, of course. And, that, and then yeah. other programs be regulated mm. by the NDIA. Mm. Yeah. Just for people who are listening, now we've got the, the, the new paradigm of the NDIS and... For some people who are, have a mental health issue, they now can sort of fall under disability. It's quite, I still find it very hard to get my head around because before we had the mental health sector, people with mental illnesses, even psychosocial issues, were over there. And we had people with disability who were people who had perhaps physical, intellectual, hearing, um, sight impaired and so forth. And we had the two very clearly separated out. But now we've got some people with high-level mental health needs who are seen as having services under the disability services. And I think it's more around the funding stream and it's just making sure that Nobody falls through the cracks and there's regulation of those providers. So it's just making sure there are safeguards in place. And obviously, health-funded services have safeguards in place. So it's making sure that those community providers of disability services have the safeguards in place as well. And that's where my act comes in. But it's a... It's an interesting landscape to navigate at the moment in ACT because people are just finding out what they're entitled to and what they're not entitled to and what the pathways for application is. So last week on the 31st of May, I actually had the director for NDIA around psychosocial disability pathways come to ACT and um, he actually presented in Belconnen last week and there was a lot of really interesting questions from families asking how they actually access support. So I want to try and bring as many people as I can into ACT to answer those questions and, and get the answers from the source and it just provides forums in which people can actually ask the questions rather than go to a website because quite often they can be quite confusing. Yeah. Thinking about people of multicultural backgrounds, were there many people of multicultural backgrounds present at the forum that you were speaking at? Yes, I think we had quite a good representation, a very multicultural representation from both families and workers because we covered chemical restraint, dual disability, the NDIA pathways for psychosocial disability. So there was a lot of interest and there was 150 people came mm. to the forum. So it was, it was great to, to see that much interest, but also to have the chief medical officer there answering questions 
around prescribers. We had Professor Julian Troller from the University of New South Wales who was presenting his data around the comorbidity of, of um, intellectual disability and mental health. So there was amazing speakers and and as I say, the interest was phenomenal. I've had phone calls every day since from families and from workers asking more and more questions and where they can find out more information. Are you planning on having another such forum? Because some of us couldn't get there because we had um, another all, obligation. All of the PowerPoints are online. If, if people just want to go to my web page and go to the Senior Practitioner Seminar Series. So far, we've had one on schools and disability services. We've had one on dual disability and chemical restraint. And we're actually going to have the next one in August, on August the 16th, on early intervention and the early childhood space. And then on November 22nd, we're having one on forensic mental health. So we've had really, really good coverage from experts across Australia. So yeah, the next one will be August the 16th, but all of the PowerPoints are available from the speakers on mm. my webpage. Very interesting reading. Did anything come out of that last seminar uh, workshop day that was interesting or new for you or new f that you think would could be picked up and developed further around? what the speakers were saying? Most definitely, because mm. Luis Salvador Carrillo was there, who is the clinical director for our mental health research area of um, ANU, and the connections were made between him and the NDIA director as well as the chief medical officer. So I think we're going to see greater connectivity into the future and I've also been working with the chief psychiatrist and the chief medical officer around information for GPs. And Dr. Paul Newen came from the Centre for Developmental Disability Health Victoria and talked about GP education. And Angela Livingston, who's a psychiatrist from the Victorian Dual Disability Service, talked about education and trauma-informed care for psychiatrists. So Great. it really, really just shone a light on an area that sometimes gets put to one side and put into the too hard basket. So it just showed people there's a lot of research in this area and there's a lot of fabulous people who are just on the end of a phone for anybody in Canberra to consult with. So that and the questions at the end of each session were exceptional. Really, really good. Sounds good. Mm. Since you've been in the job, how long have you been in the job? Sounds like you're doing an amazing job already. I started July the 5th last year, and because I'm new to Canberra, I really needed to get to know what does the restrictive practice landscape look like across Canberra, you know, and I needed to get people comfortable with discussing restrictive practice in a safe space, knowing that they weren't going to lose their job or weren't going to be seen as whistleblowers because when we have people who provide a service to people with complex behaviours and have a duty of care to that person, sometimes to keep the person or those around them safe, 
they may need to engage in a restrictive practice. And I, I just need people to talk about that and use the same language. But of course, you mentioned the word seclusion, and it's an incredibly emotive word. And the definition in my act is just a person alone in a space that they believe they can't exit. Now, that space could be a bedroom, it could be a classroom, it could be a small courtyard. It's just a space. But what people conjure up is that vision of the seclusion room in a mental health setting or a justice setting where it's a small bare room with big locks on the doors. That's not the seclusion we're talking about under Maya. It's people being left alone in a space. And with any restrictive practice, it's just a flag that we need help. We need to provide that person and those around them supports to make sure that those restrictive practices are absolutely only in harm to self or harm to other situations. Mm. I recall reading, I think it's a couple of years ago, about a, a young boy who'd been locked in a cupboard in a school setting. Mm. So this is a restrictive practice. I think locking somebody in a cupboard is, is just plain abuse. It wouldn't be seen as a restrictive practice under my act. The restrictive practices under my act are those reasonable responses to harm to self or harm to others situations. So I think we just need to get everybody comfortable around talking about that. What's reasonable? What's keeping everybody safe? So and and just drawing a line under abuse when it's mentioned. Mm. Yeah. And so when you say you're talking about what's reasonable, are we also talking about what the behaviour that they're, that they're dealing with at the time and how a better pathway of supporting that person? Definitely. The, the first step whenever we've had a restrictive practice is to find out why the person behaved in that manner. And it can be for many, many, many different reasons. And unless we find out what that reason was, there's very little we can do going into the future to try and stop it happening into the f many, many times in the future. So we do a functional behavioural assessment as part of a positive behaviour support plan. And that really is talking to the people who know the person best, talking to the person, talking to their families, and just trying to work out why did it happen? What's behind the behaviour? Is it something as simple as an environmental stimulus that can be removed, adjusted. What what can we do? Let's get the easy fixes out the way first. But in Victoria, in the in the twelve years I was working in the senior practitioner's office there, we saw an overrepresentation in our data of people who didn't use speech to communicate. So obviously the first question we'll always ask is, what method of communication does that person use? Because the person may well just be trying to tell us something. Hmm. And if it's something like that person's in pain, they've got toothache, but they just can't tell anybody that, we need to be detectives and try and work out what is driving that behaviour. Because the last thing I want to see is somebody with toothache on a positive behaviour support plan. 
I'd like to see them at the dentist. I think it's very important that the voice of the person themselves is understood or, or as you said, how is it communicated? What are they trying to say? Because often that space gets squeezed out mm. or if, if or even obliterated because, and sometimes with good intentions, so it becomes what someone reports that they think they said or, or did or why. And I think that's where a lot of this is great because it allows that space to be opened up for the person's own voice to to come through as the basic datum of 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 the issue or what's happening for them you know in yeah. those sorts of situations and that's at the center of everything yeah, we just do great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's good to hear collecting data and reviewing the data around particular incidents is critical absolutely critical positive behavior support is obviously the science of looking at behavior and working out why it's happening, how often it's happening, what is the intensity of it, what's a reasonable response, what are the positive strategies we can actually put in place to support that person. Because the whole idea of these behaviour support plans is to both minimise the behaviour but also increase the person's quality of life. That's what it's all about. So it's working out what does the person want to do? What do they like to do? How can we enable them to do that? And as I say, going back to my previous comment about overrepresentation of people who don't use speech to communicate, where's the communication assessment? What method of communication are they using? You know, we've we've got amazing apps on on phones and iPads and everything these days, but it's making sure that they're accessible to people. It's no good just talking about them and not enabling people to use them. And then if people can't use those, what else could they use? And we need to make sure that it's a two-way conversation. It's no good having the person very able to use um, either keyword signing or proloquo or whatever they, they use to communicate. And those around them not understanding what they're saying. So it's a matter of making sure everybody is aware of the person's communication method so they don't miss any nuances and do something that's going to actually agitate the person as opposed to help them. So we just need to make sure everything's written down, it's concise, a short plan's a good plan because that one will get read, a 30 to 60 page plan will get put in a filing cabinet and nobody will ever look at it. So we just need to make sure that all of those key points are easily accessible to everybody supporting the person. And then those larger plans that have informed the two-page plan are accessible to me so I know the thinking behind those strategies. Mm. That sounds great. Um, What has been the take-up or the response to having those individual behavioural or support plans? We're working through each service slowly. NDS have been amazing. I've been out to their forums three or four times to talk to providers. I've been going out to individual houses and talking to staffing groups, families, people living in the houses about what's happening, about what my role entails. I have two staff, one of whom is on loan at the moment. Dr. Sheridan Kerr has a PhD and lots of experience in 
positive behaviour support. So she actually goes out and teaches people how to write one. So obviously this first 12 months has very much been the setup. So we've been doing a lot of education, a lot of site visits. So now we're overrun with plans coming to the panel to get approved and get registered with myself. So, And that's how what we wanted to happen. We wanted people to have the conversation in the first instance and then talk about the regulations and the compliance rather than the other way around. Yeah, Sounds good. To what degree is there a need for staff who are working with those particular people to have some upskilling? Well, this is the intent of the NDIS Commission. After 1 July this year, anybody who has a restrictive practice in place should be funded for behaviour support in their NDIA package and access a behaviour support specialist who is actually employed to come out, speak to everybody who supports the person and write the plan based on evidence-based tools for assessments and then teach everybody how to implement that plan. So by default, we're actually teaching everybody about positive behaviour support. But instead of people going to a classroom situation and talking about positive behaviour support and then not being able to implement it, this is actually education, educating the team who are supporting the person in real time to implement a real plan and see real outcomes. So I think it's going to be a much more um, successful way of embedding positive behaviour support across disability services, schools and out-of-home care Mm -hmm. because the behaviour support specialists are actually going to have to come in and educate people in how to implement the plans. And people with psychosocial disability, do they fall under the need for these? Yes, if there's a restrictive practice in place. So things like locked fridges, locked front doors, um, restricted access to personal belongings, they come under my act. So if it's response to a harm to self or harm to others situation, then they'll need a behaviour support plan they'll need a behaviour support specialist coming into their house and educating everyone who's supporting them. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that as time goes on, that will permeate everybody's orientation when they start work in a service. We'll start talking about the Human Rights Act again because we're a really lucky jurisdiction in that we have the Human Rights Act 2004. And I really want to reinvigorate people's appetite to look at the legislation and look at how it can have better outcomes for people. Hmm. Sounds good. Uh, it's interesting. Um, there's a few issues there. To, so the, the focus is on organisations who are providing services to people that, ca- that are coming under the, their services in, in the community sector. In Anybody. social services or... Anybody with restrictive practices in place in an NDIA package, whether they're in supported living accommodation or in their own home, can get the services of behaviour support specialists. 
Right. So if someone, though, is receiving an NDIS package, but they feel the way it's been delivered to them is restrictive in some way, mm. uh, is that uh, become an issue as People well? People can contact me directly mm. because they're in ACT or they can contact the NDIS Commission. Right. And do you notice any issues that, say, between for-profit organisations and not-for-profits in the way they're approaching this issue or...? To date, I haven't seen any difference Mm. because people are really just getting used to the idea of restrictive practices being regulated. So I can't say I've seen any particular patterns yet, but that doesn't mean that won't come out in the data as time goes on, because Mm. that's the whole point. That's one of the functions of the senior practitioner under the Act is to actually do research in this area as well. So as I collect all the information, obviously I'll be looking at which services have different types of restrictive practice and then trying to identify why. And I know that you mentioned that there's the personal behavioural support plans or the individual ones, but you also alluded to, and I, I take it that this also goes to corporate plans that can address how they're going to approach this or policies around that is that most definitely right um, we expect the act to be reflected in policies and procedures throughout the organization whether it be a government organization or a private sector organization policies and procedures protocols need to be in place to support the implementation of the act mm. so it's those two as well as the personal or individual support plan that has to be approved by your panel a panel it's only the individual positive behavior support plans that go to a panel and if the panel feels that they meet all the criteria under the act they then forward them to me for registration so it's a two-step process because the panel's looking at the context of the plan and then i'm looking at it So it's a two-step process. And because a panel has approved a plan, that doesn't mean that I will register it. I may ask for more information, which I can under the Act. Right. Or I might flatly refuse to Mm. register the plan. And the restrictive practices are not considered authorised until the plan's registered with me. Because I, I know from when I was work involved in looking at restrictive practices in given contexts that what came out of it was not just the restrictive practice but the culture and the systemic yes. issues that that lead to these practices around training, around staff mix and skills and and a whole lot of uh, other issues that are that are beyond that the outside of a scope of a, an individual behavioural support plan, I'd imagine. But So how would you... How would you say this process addresses those cultural and structural issues? And that's why I think the individual behaviour support plans and the engagement of the behaviour support specialists is a better way to actually address education of support workers around positive behaviour support because they can actually see it improving the person's quality of life and that's going to drive a culture change because people will always do what's better for the people in their care and they need to see that it's going to be better for them. I think at the moment, a lot of people 
may see this as an administrative burden. I need to make it real for people and I need people to see the benefits of positive behaviour support in people's daily lives. It's an evidence-based practice. It's got about 30 years evidence behind it. Mm-hmm. It works. I just need people to see that it works. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they're not going to believe it and they're not going to engage in it. And obviously, your support workers who are working in a house where they've received that education will then go on to work in other houses throughout that organisation and the word will spread. So I, I really do think this is going to be a much better way of educating people as well as permeating service providers such as CIT or the universities and making sure that positive behaviour support is in the curriculums as well Mm. so that we're addressing it at every level. Mm. So you think that then you're optimistic, obviously, about how then that individual support modelling in in those individual plans can then change organisational um, issues or structures culture. around culture or around training or around actually having more staff to do the things that the restrictive practice might be taking the place of? It's well-based optimism. I've been working mm. in Victoria for the last 12 years yeah. and I've seen it happen time and time and time mm. again. That's great to hear, yeah. It really has made a difference and it's lovely when people who are in those services that are national services and I've worked with them in Victoria and they're now contacting me in ACT. It's really, really good that we've we've got that cross-border relationship so that we, we've now got a framework in which we can do it in ACT. We hear some horror stories about the way that people who are in aged care yes, yes. systems are treated. Does your role uh, around reducing and eliminating restrictive practice also cover nursing homes and places of aged care? Again, it would only be for that very, very small population of younger people who are in aged care facilities, who are in receipt of NDIA packages, that I would be able to go in and look at the practices for that person I'm hoping that into the future that people will perhaps look at the Senior Practitioner Act as a framework that could be used across aged care as well. I don't think there's any reason to reinvent the wheel. The principles are the same, regardless of what sector you're working in. Positive behaviour support is the same wherever. So... I'm really hoping that people will look at the work we're doing currently and take take some of the best aspects of that and just introduce it into aged care. And if, if that was a possibility, would they be people who had a My Aged Care plan or something? I don't know. I'd have to look into the intricacies of the aged care service settings in ACT, but currently my, my role is only limited to to NDIA packages. Yeah, but it sounds as if it would have a great deal of benefit for more humane care and treatment and support of people who are at the end of their lives. You won't get any argument from me around reducing restrictive practices in any supported 
services, whether it be age or early childhood, everybody deserves the best quality of life those supporting them can give them. The argument would be, does this need to to be regulated by legislation or can it be regulated in other ways? Mm -hmm. I think that's the decision making. I, I don't think there's any question that restrictive practices shouldn't be regulated. It's just a matter of how they should be regulated. Mm. Yeah. Can I ask you, because I suppose listeners might be just curious uh, of the sorts of negative experiences that people have had uh, when a restrictive practice has been, for want of a better word, abused. What sort of things have happened to people in these positions? As I say, my act covers regulated restrictive practices, which is people engaging in restrictive practice in a duty of care situation, harm to self or harm to others situation. Any other practices outside of that duty of care situation are dealt with under reportable conduct scheme or by the police as abuse or assault. This is a very, very small cohort of people where the use of restrictive practice has been driven by duty of care. So whenever um, situations are reported to me, I always look at it with that lens. Was this a restrictive practice carried out in a duty of care situation? Or is it in fact reportable conduct? Or do the police need to be informed? Or mandatory reporting? But to date, I think because disability services are a little bit ahead of the game with NDIS and with ACT going into the NDIS so early, I think conversations about restrictive practices have been had for some years now. And it's the other two sectors that are perhaps less mature around the use of the language. And they're now just sorting out what is reportable conduct, what is a restrictive practice, and what is abuse that requires police involvement. Mm. Are the services and organisations that you're going into, are they keen to see you come in the door? They are now. I've been here nearly a year, so I think the fear factor's now gone. <laughs> um, people realise that I'm not going to come in all guns blazing and that when I do come into a service or, or visit a house... It's purely to find out how I can help, how I can clarify anything. Could I perhaps send one of my team over to, to talk people through how you write a behaviour support plan and just how do we move forward together? So I think I've, I've got a lot more goodwill now in place that I've been able to, to meet with more and more people. Mm-hmm. And, and people, as I say, NDS, schools... They've just been inviting me in on a daily basis. I would love to have 20 more staff so I could actually visit everywhere that people ask me to visit. And I'm sure into the future, we we will capacity build people to go out and do what I do now. But I always try and go out with senior managers. So once they've been out with me a, a couple of times, they're then looking through my eyes because I think, as we all know, you can get used to environments, you can get used to situations, and you don't see it anymore. 
You don't see the look on the fridge anymore. You don't think about the fact you've got to use a key to get through three doors to show somebody into a house. So I just point those things out and then we take it from there. Mm -hmm. But people have been incredibly welcoming in in ACT. Mm. So there are other ways to do some of these things, perhaps. Most definitely, as I say, having worked in this space for the last 12 years in Victoria, we just need to talk people through how to do it and that a lot of things are slow and a lot of hard work and you don't get the instant results that people want. But with a lot of hard work, we've been able to completely eliminate things like mechanical restraint, use of devices that are restricting people's movements. Things like bodysuits spring to mind where people were wearing all-in-ones underneath their clothes and we just slowly got rid of those over time. Why would somebody be wearing an all-in-one? I don't know anything about this. There could be a variety of reasons. As I say, it's usually around that self-injurious behaviour and people hurting themselves, perhaps picking at areas, causing actual injury. We just need to find out why. Mm. Mm. If you come across in your visits issues or instances or, or that are, go beyond what your own remit is, do you have an obligation there to escalate those? Or I mean, if, if for instance, that is even a case of locking someone in a cupboard or a cage or, 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 or other even less drastic ones like that that could involve bullying or, or, or abuse in some other ways do you I've made very very good connections across all directorates and with the ombudsman as well who obviously has carriage of the reportable conduct scheme so I'm very easily able to escalate any matters I actually share a building with the human rights commission so I'm I'm able to actually follow those pathways and and usually when a complaint comes into me, I'm able to get either another directorate, the CAO, the Human Rights Commission, the public advocate. There are existing pathways to deal with those complaints. I haven't yet have to had to deal with a complaint yet where there wasn't a pathway within Canberra. Mm, that's good to and hear too. I've also done joint visits with people like the the Human Services Registrar where restrictive practices have been reported so that I could address the small area of the complaint around restrictive practice. So that's great because that's filling a link role as well. Yes. uh, um, And an enabling role to escalate some of those things that would otherwise perhaps go fall by the wayside or not get raised at the, with those appropriate authorities. Yes, and it's it's an interesting Processes. conversation. Yeah. Indeed. I'm, make, I'm joining the dots every yes, day. Yes, good on you. That's great. <laughs> Is there anything you'd like to add? Have we covered everything? What What do you see in the, for the future of your role and and what sort of changes do can we expect over the next, say, five years? Currently, as I say, We have a lot of service sectors who are providing services to the same person. We need to smooth out how we share information 
and how we work together better. So I think there may be changes into the future around information sharing, around that seamless provision of service, which hopefully, if you're in receipt of that service, you don't realise all of the mechanisms behind it. But I think in the next five years, there's going to be a lot of hard work across government and across the private sector around those mechanisms and how we get everybody working together in that seamless manner and positive behaviour support plans for reducing restrictive practices are very much at the pointy end of that service provision. But if we can get it right there, everything else should just fall into place. Mm. And I really want people to contact me as much as possible and and have a conversation and not mull over something and worry if they should have reported something. Is it a restrictive practice? What's their duty under the Act? I, I really just want people to give me a call and talk about it. Do you mind if I give out my mobile number? No, that's fine by me if you're okay with that. It is... Now I just need to remember my own 0466-478-907. So again? 0466-478-907. I hope that's right. Do you see other gaps that could actually complement the spread of the awareness and, and education around the work of you know restrictive practice understandings like i can imagine just even in the psychosocial sphere around training for consumers clients carers family members in terms of what can be expected and what's available around this whole and i'm happy area. to be invited out right. anywhere i've been to morning teas mm. i've gone out we can to vouch for that. evening <laughs> i've gone to evening sessions at early childhood centers i'll go to anybody's team meetings i'll go to any gatherings where people think what i have to say would be useful mm. i'm i'm happy to, and i really like being invited out i'm new to canberra so it's great to to go anywhere yeah, so happy to, happy to be invited to go anywhere and talk about this. I have a little curly question just to finish us up on. In, in terms of restrictive practice in, in the mental health space, and you've talked about the importance of analysing data around particular events. How significant is that in terms of reducing incidents of restrictive practice for people who are incarcerated in in acute care? Obviously, I can only speak from my experience of working in mental health in Australia, and that's in the forensic system. And every single episode of restraint, we had a, a debriefing session where we talked about what could have been done better, what do we think drove the situation, is there any other way that we could have addressed it in a less restrictive manner? And that's led to less restraint. I was working in forensic mental health when the Beacon Project was in operation and we managed to significantly reduce the use of restraint and seclusion. And I think there's been some great learnings from that. But like any initiative, it requires champions 
Yes. So we need those champions to continue on the good work that the Beacon Project started. But mm. whenever I talk about reducing restrictive practice, I also talk about Hookshawn's six core strategies for the reduction of restrictive practice. And of course, number six on her list is rigorous debriefing. Mm. So you've, you've really got to have that in place. But like any framework, you engage in all the six areas and have activity in all six areas. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Mm. So I always ask organizations to look at Hookshawn's six core strategies mm. and see what activity they've got happening mm. there. I'm also a credentialed mental health nurse. So therefore, I'm required to have clinical supervision. And I encourage all mental health nurses to have clinical supervision where you can reflect on what's challenging you, but also reflect on what you've done really well and how can you build on that. Hmm. I was just going to say, Huck Sean is, yes, I think an important person in this field because uh, she's the American clinical researcher, isn't yes. it, with, as part of a yeah, team. Yeah, Kevin that, and Huck Sean. Kevin, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and New Zealand have just produced a resource hmm. that actually operationalises those six core strategies in a mental health setting. And it's a really nice resource. Yeah, good. Thanks. Okay. Well, we really appreciate you coming and giving us your time today. I know it's been a long day for you. So thank you so very much for giving us your insights and, uh, you know, telling us about the role. And it's wonderful, I think, that we've got somebody dedicated to do this work now because it sounds as if the way you're coming at it is, is from a very positive, educative uh, perspective and trying to bring people along with you to change practice so really appreciate you giving us the time Mandy thanks for giving me the opportunity Anya and David thank you